scriptures to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. I did not finish Philippians, but we will actually finish Corinthians today. That's on page 1792. Keep it open on your laps. I'll be referring to it often. Quaker and theologian D. Elton Trueblood wrote the following. A man has made at least a start on discovering the meaning of human life when he plants shade trees under which he knows full well he will never sit. True blood is hitting on a way of thinking, a way of doing that is very, very deeply embedded in scripture. A mindset that is wholly different from the world around you. A godly way of looking at the world. Today we're going to call that a kingdom mindset. A kingdom mindset. A kingdom mindset is different from the world around you. A kingdom mindset has different interests, different cares, different plans. A kingdom mindset has different passions, different loves and different hates. A kingdom mindset looks at the world and sees different priorities different urgencies, different values. Mother Teresa started a home in Calcutta for India, for, in India for dying, for those who were dying, the, so that those dying in the streets of India could die surrounded by people that care and love, for, love them. She captures our imagination for the very reason that we would not do what she did. We might start a hospital to cure them. We might give funds to build houses. But those who are dying are dying anyway. Why waste time on them? And that's the difference between our conventional, practical, pragmatic thinking and kingdom thinking. Having a kingdom mindset. And that's what we're going to see in this last chapter that Paul pens to the Corinthian church. Paul's saying his final words of goodbyes, as he does in many of his letters, actually, what my mother has called housekeeping issues. But these, in these housekeeping business, we see a glimpse of kingdom activity in the early church. And we see a different mindset at work, a kingdom mindset. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 16. Paul writes now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian church to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can come and help me on my journey whatever I go. I do not want to see you now and only make a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you 
if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door of effective work has opened to me. There are many who oppose me. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the whole household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labor at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. There's a saying that most of you know, so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Now we get that proverb. We understand what is the caution that it is trying to say. However, when you look at the history of the church, it is those who were most heavenly minded that did the most earthly good for God. And that's what we see in Paul, a heavenly mindedness, a kingdom mindset, a kingdom mindset in the area of generosity. That's what verses one through four is where he starts out is talking about. Apparently, the church in Jerusalem was going through a tough time, a difficult time. We know that a few years before Paul penned this letter, there was a great famine in that area of the world, and maybe it was still going on, or there were some residual effects there. We don't know. Or maybe there was something else going on. But whatever it is, there was a need. Jerusalem was in need. They needed help. And so Paul took it upon himself to take up a collection from the churches on his third missionary journey. In Asia, Minor, which is now Turkey, in Greece, Macedonia, northern Greece, and down into Corinth. And the, Corinth, the Corinthians knew he was doing this, and they had some questions about this collection. I mean, the, the Corinthian letter, the second half of it, as we have seen, is all based off of questions that they had had, had, had posed to Paul, right? Questions on marriage in chapter 7. Questions about food sacrifice to idols, In chapter 8, questions about spiritual gifts in chapter 12, 
Questions about bodily resurrection in chapter 15. And here is their last question, now about the collection. Paul, tell us about this collection. What should we do? Give us some direction. Give us some clarity. And so Paul addresses them by saying, do what the Galatian churches, I told the Galatian church to do. Verse 2, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. And it can go right to Jerusalem. Actually, here's one of the rare instances in the New Testament where we see some direction giving on giving. The Old Covenant had a ton of direction on giving, didn't it? It was very prescribed. In the New Covenant, New Testament, it's, it's not very prescribed. But here we have a rare look into the prescription of New Covenant giving. And we see, first of all, that it should be consistent. Giving should be consistent on the first day of every week. Now that was obviously alluding to the day that we worship on, Sunday, In the Jewish calendar, Sunday was the first day of the week, the Sabbath, Saturday being the last day of the week. And in deference to the day in which Christ arose, the early church started meeting on that first day. We call it Sunday. I think he's alluding to having the collection in the Sunday worship service. So Paul seems to be indicating that there should be some consistency in giving on the first day of every week. Why this consistency? Why this regularity? Well, obviously, the first reason is is that that giving is an act of worship. That's why we don't have a Joash box in the back. Some of you maybe know that tradition, where you don't take an offering, but on your way out, you give. We consider it a part of worship, as God did in the Old Covenant. But also there might be a more sanctifying reason why he does this too, and that's the application for us. In our depravity, giving is not natural. Giving is not a natural thing in our flesh. Taking is the natural. We're not wired that way. In our depravity, one of the most significant ways that we can see sin that so easily entangles us is in our difficulty in in giving. And consistency helps break down that natural selfishness. It's not sinful to give in a lump sum. Some people give an annual gift. It's not sinful to do that. But when people ask me, I always say, Give consistently, because there is a sanctifying structure there. It's amazing how writing a check each week or or pulling out some cash from your pocketbook or wallet tends to start breaking down those barriers. It's a healthy, disciplined structure in your life. So Paul says, give consistently. Also, secondly, give proportionally. He says, in keeping with your income. Give in keeping with your income. $5,000 is a big deal if you're making $35,000 a year. It's not as big a deal when you're making $350,000 a year. Give proportionally. 
Giving the Old Testament was much more prescribed, 10% tithe. A definite marker in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, give proportionally. 10%, 5%, 20%. I'd say that 10% is probably, if, if you're looking for, for a marker on this, 10% is probably a good beginning. It's probably a good place to start. Some have asked, is that before or after taxes? To that I always say, is that a question that would even come into the forefront of your mind if you're standing before God Almighty? Beginning at 10% starts, begins to make what C.S. Lewis wrote come alive and bear on your lives. He wrote, if our expenditures on comforts and luxuries and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I would say it's too small. Lastly, giving should be deliberate. Set aside a sum of money, he writes. Save the money up to give, he writes. Giving to God should never be an afterthought. It should never be the leftover after you've lived. It should always be the first. That's, that's the principle that the first fruits was to teach the people in the Old Covenant. And that's a wonderful principle for us to remember as we, as we read our Old Testaments. It's the first. It's the best. You brought your best, strongest bull in the herd to God. I remember when I first got here, Don Jenkins taught me a valuable lesson. We were doing something for the church, and I said something like, you know, we'll just get, you go to Goodwill or something, get something, or get something from secondhand. He said, no, no, no. The church deserves the best. Never forget it. Giving to God should always be consistent, proportional, and deliberate. So here we have some personal directives on giving, which are important, but also in these four verses we see a kingdom mindset of Paul. Paul sees one church hurting, and he responds to that hurt. He wants all the churches to participate in helping that hurt. In other words, he's using the same principle that he wrote in the 12th chapter when he was talking about the body of Christ. If you remember in that chapter, he he said, listen, if one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. We all come to its aid. He writes, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lack it, so there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is the part. He's taking that principle, and he's expanding it out to the body of Christ in the Mediterranean basin. We are to have a kingdom mindset In regard to our generosity, our giving should not just be with our church in mind. Let me say that again. 
Our giving should not just be with our church in mind. But the greater body, the greater kingdom. I have to tell you, it's going to be a tough sermon. I have to tell you how proud I am of you. You handled the surplus from last year. God gave us an amazing abundance last year. Our giving far exceeded our expenses. And you handled it with such great kingdom mindset. Giving it away to places like Mears Academy that's educating children in Hancock County. Giving it away to our missionaries who are building the kingdom in the world. Giving it away to the Deacons Fund, the Benevolence Fund, that help the community around us. And even giving some away to a brand new line that we call Kingdom Initiatives, helping churches in this area. I'm so proud of you. You had God's kingdom in mind. You didn't think how we could save it for a rainy day. You didn't think how we could set up an endowment for the church. You didn't think how we could make life more comfortable for us. That's kingdom mindset. Secondly, we see the kingdom mindset in how Paul encourages. How Paul encourages his encouragement. When you look at the, rat, the world through the lens of the needs and priorities of God's kingdom, you begin to see how critical encouragement is. My mother raised us with the unwritten rule at home that home is a place of encouragement. She used to say, the world beats you down all the time. Here you're encouraged. And that's what we see here in this final chapter is Paul encouraging the Corinthian church. Why? Because he loves them. Look at verse 24. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Those aren't just words that you should write. It's not sincerely, Paul. He loves this church. His heart is invested in this church. There's a story behind one of my favorite illustrators and painters, Gustave Doré. One day he was handed a painting of Jesus that was just finished by one of his students. The student asked for his critique. And so Doré studied it for a while, his mind searching for the right words. At last he handed it back to his student and said these words. If you loved him more, you would have painted him better. You want to encourage well? Love more. Love deeply. Open up your heart to the people around you. Open up your heart to the churches around you. If you look at verses 19 and 20, you see that Paul is passing along encouragement from other churches to the Corinthian church, don't you? showing how much the wider church body cares for them. Ephesus sends their warm greetings. 
The churches in Asia Minor are sending their, their warmest regards. Priscilla and Aquila send along their love. Priscilla and Aquila, that, that would have meant the world to the Corinthian church. Do you know why? Because Priscilla and Aquila started the church in Corinth. It was their home that they began to meet in. Could you imagine a church planter writing back after 20 years? He's somewhere else. He writes back, I just love you guys. My heart is still with you guys. How much that would mean? It is encouraging to know that other churches have you on their mind and hearts and that we develop a love for encouraging other churches. I was so encouraged to hear one of you pray in our prayer time about other churches. That's starting to deepen our love, allowing them in. Other churches. We want to take other churches into our hearts, like Cornerstone Baptist just down the road, like Bar Harbor Baptist on the other side of the island, like United Baptist up in Ellsworth and Family Bible. Some of you probably passed it coming down here. We want to take them into our hearts like New Hope in Bangor and Grace Church on the way to Bangor. And even churches far away. Even churches that that don't even know us. We want to be praying for Bethlehem Baptist, John Piper's church. I pray for for the churches of the men who are, are extending themselves outside their own four walls. Do you know why? Because I know the evil one is after that church and those men. Because they're extending the body. So we want to be preaching. And we want to be praying for John Piper's church, Bethlehem Baptist. We want to be praying for Mark Dever's church, Capitol Baptist. We want to be praying for, for uh, Redeemer Presbyterian, Tim Keller's church. We want to be praying for Parkside Church, Alistair Begg's church, and those men. That's what the Gospel Alliance Maine is trying to do on a very small level. Not just bring gospel culture into the Maine churches, but a kingdom mindset into those churches as well. They love us and we them. We need to be encouraged and to encourage each other like Paul does in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. He's encouraging them. Ozzie Smith, maybe some of you know, is is one of the most famous shortstops in baseball history. In his induction speech into the Baseball Hall of Fame, he likened his life to the, the construction of a baseball. And he said, protecting the cork center of this ball... And reinforcing it are two distinct layers, one rubber and one string. He said, for me, these two layers reflect two vital and affirming shells of my core dream. The first rubber shell is my faith in God. With him, I have everything. Without him, I have nothing. The second part of the construction of this baseball is manufactured by wrapping 200 yards 
of wool string around that core. He said, these are the strands of love and faith that so many people have had in me, especially my mother and her love and encouragement. We can kind of rework Ozzy's metaphor of the baseball and say that the cork is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cork is the gospel. This is the most important thing. Paul says in the last chapter, chapter 15, 3, I pass this on as of first importance. That Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he raised from the dead three days later, according to the scriptures. That's the most important thing. That's the white hot core. That's the cork center of everything that we do that you believe that Jesus Christ came and lived a sinless life, that he actually secured a righteousness before God because he was sinless, because he lived a perfect life. He secured a rightness before God. And he could have left and gone to heaven, but he didn't. Instead of taking that road, he took the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. He chose to be tortured and killed. Why did he choose that? To be a substitute. To be a substitute for you and me. To pay for our sins. The Passover lamb is the perfect picture. This perfect, white, innocent lamb killed and put on the doorposts. And death passes over. So by doing so, he turned the Via Della Rosa into a potential Via Della Vite, way of life. Romans 10.9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that in your heart, you will be saved. Thus, if you believe that the only Only through Jesus can we attain standing before God. You will be saved. Thus, if you believe that by your own works you can attain nothing, you will be saved. If you believe that Jesus did rise from the dead and conquer sin and death, you will be saved. If you love Jesus with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, you'll be saved. And this is so serious that Paul puts a warning. I bet it popped out to you like it popped out to me in verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. If you think of what I just said is not serious, that should dispel This is a life or death matter. The path of life and hope and peace and forgiveness are a path of curse. You're either on the Via Della Vite, the way of life, or the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. And that is hard. But that's the cork. That's what we believe. And that's what must be protected by the layer around it, that layer of rubber that Ozzy talks about. 
This is the encouragement that Paul gives in verse 13. Be on your guard. You want to protect that cork? Be on your guard. It's a word in Greek that is very closely associated in the New Testament with Christ's second coming. Be watchful. I think what Paul is encouraging us to be to do is be watching. Maybe more so. And even be living as if Christ would come tomorrow. Think of how that would change your life if you thought tomorrow's the day. It would change your agenda for today. It would change your decisions. It would change everything. Stand firm in the faith against false teachers. Watch out for those gospel and people that infiltrate the church. Stand firm on the foundation of salvation. Faith alone. By grace alone. Through Christ alone. Be men of courage. Probably, he was thinking here of what he just wrote to them. Some very hard things. Practice meaningful membership in church discipline. That's hard. That's unpopular. Pursue sexual purity in a hyper-sexualized environment in Corinth. Live, like the, live the weaker brother principle. Love your brother and sister so much that you're willing to forego your freedom to help them. Be strong. Resist the culture creep into the church. Don't make decisions on being practical and pragmatic. Make decisions on theology. Do everything in love. Because that's the only, only thing that goes on to glory. is the love that you show. He says that in verse 13. Faith, hope, and love. The grace of these is love. Why is the grace of these love? Because faith and hope will no longer be necessary in glory. We will see face to face. And our hope will be fulfilled. And the 200 yards of string that Ozzy talks about, wrapped around the rubber, is the encouragement that we give. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Hebrews 13, uh, 3.13 says, But encourage one another daily. Daily. I don't think we realize how important encouragement is. How much of a... Of a of a shock absorber encouragement is in our life. I cannot tell you, maybe I won't be able to tell you, I cannot tell you how perfect your encouragements are. At perfect times when I need them. Thank you. Thank you. We need to wind the string of encouragement around each other continually. Lastly, we see a kingdom mindset with your life. A kingdom mindset with your life. When you look at the world through the lens of the needs and priorities of God's kingdom, you begin, you start to you begin to see how critical 
you are, your role is in God's kingdom. In this chapter, as with many of Paul's last chapters, we get a glimpse into how the kingdom was working at that time and how people had the kingdom mindset like like people like Timothy in verses 10 and 11. Have you ever had a friend that you, that you wanted to be around all the time? Have you ever had that kind of friend where, you know, I, I just want to, to be with them on a daily basis? Well, Paul had that friend in Timothy. And he sent him around the Mediterranean basin to strengthen the kingdom of God. He didn't think of himself. So Timothy went and he pastored and he encouraged and he taught and he served in the bodies of Thessalonica, in Athens, in Ephesus, and here in Corinth. Timothy had a kingdom mindset. People like Apollos in verse 12, an uber-gifted teacher apparently, an uber-gifted teacher, you know, like some of the men we just mentioned yet willing to be a simple tool in God's hand. If you remember back in chapter 3, Paul writes, What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each his task. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. He was saying, Apollos, this uber-gifted teacher who could have had a mega church, a mega ministry, he's just going around using that for God's purposes. A kingdom mindset. People like Priscilla and Aquila in verses 19 and 20. I mentioned this back in Sunday school. They were a married couple who literally moved from town to town, city to city, buying houses, in order for the church to have a place to meet. They did it in Corinth. Then they moved to Ephesus. And apparently here they had a home in Ephesus that they opened. And then they moved to Rome. They bought a house and opened their house. Imagine that kingdom mindset. I'm not going to hunker down here because it's comfortable. You know, the Lord needs me there. I'm going to go there. I'm going to uproot everything. A kingdom mindset. And then there was Paul. Verses 5 through 9. Here we get a glimpse into Paul's kingdom mindset. Paul was currently ministering in Ephesus, coastal Turkey, and he plans to travel by land through Macedonia, northern Greece, probably visiting the churches that are planted there, Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And then he has a desire to stay, not just do a passing visit with them, but he's saying, listen, I want to stay. I want to hunker down with you for a while. I want to be with those who I love. Even those who weren't returning that same love like the people in Corinth. Amazing. Paul was always putting God's kingdom ahead of his own agenda, ahead of his own heart. He was totally, 100%, sold out for God and his kingdom. How did he get there? What's the secret? He had a kingdom mindset. 
The Lord asked Paul to leave behind being a Pharisee, and he did. The Paul asked the Lord to leave behind his home and crisscross the Mediterranean, living on the kindness of others, and he did. The Lord asked Paul to leave his own plans, dreams, and desires and live a totally sacrificial life, and he did. The Lord asked Paul to stay in Ephesus because there were opportunities for the gospel, even though there was apparently a lot of opposition there. Not where I'd want to stay. And he did. The Lord asked Paul to go to Jerusalem even when he had showed him that he would go to jail. And he did. Why? Why did he consider everything he had rubbish and place and rest in the total hands of God? How can he do that? How can we get to a place where Timothy was, where Apollos was, where Priscilla and Aquila were, where Paul was? Simple, but hard. You live out, actually live out, the implications of the gospel in your life. Tim Keller tells a story of a woman who began coming to Redeemer. She'd never heard the message of the gospel before. And when she came to accept God by the sheer grace and through the work of Christ, not depending on her own righteousness at all, she said to Tim, This is scary. Not, not just, she said, it's a good scary, but it's scary. And Keller said, what do you mean? She replied, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I've done my duty. And now I deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he can't ask of me. She got it. That's a kingdom mindset. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, your work is to apply that word to our hearts and to our minds and change us from the inside out. We depend on you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.